Welcome to It Didn't Break Me, a podcast where we have honest and vulnerable conversations around the messy stuff we didn't think we'd come back from, inspiring you to give yourself permission to discover the beauty within the mess and to let go the illusion of perfection. I'm your host, Bianca Keisha Hughes. Hello there and welcome to the It Didn't Break Me podcast. I am your host, Bianca Kishi Hughes. Thank you so much for joining me here. We are in season three and it is episode seven. As always, I have an amazing guest sharing their story today. Before we get into that, I want to share a little something with you that has been resonating with me. And I feel like it's really, really important because I hear it so much and I, and I know I'm not alone. You know, I always say that I share these stories because we're not alone. So one of the things I work with is perfectionism, helping people embrace their imperfections and authentically be themselves. And the thing about perfectionism, a lot of it is about identity, who we are, you know, moving away from our fear of rejection because we don't want to be disconnected and also being able to see this out. So one of the things I help clients do in this, in order to embrace your imperfections, you also have to see what's great about you. And so often you're focused on what you don't have, not feeling like you're enough, continually trying to perform to feel like you're enough, that you miss your strengths and the beauty of what you do have. And so this year, my words this year have been, I am powerful and I am fearless. And so recently I would say, so since let's say the beginning of the year, so we're now what in March, you're probably listening to this in April. I'm recording this in March, but you're listening to this in April. But basically since January, I have definitely, definitely grown in that word of I am powerful. Fearless, true, but the big thing is right now is I am powerful. And here's the thing, going back to seeing yourself, it wasn't so much about me not being powerful. It is the fact that I wasn't paying attention to it. I wasn't stepping into it and I wasn't being confident in it. And it's not to say I haven't been confident in how powerful I am before. I just feel like it constantly grows. And when it's at the forefront of your mind and you truly see how powerful you are, it shifts everything. So it means to be courageous. So courageous is doing things even then you're afraid to be okay to recognize your sense of powerfulness. And it's not so much as power over people. It's just power within myself in terms of my confidence, in terms of my belief, in terms of my capabilities. Because so many times if we don't recognize how powerful we are, we don't feel motivated. We don't feel like we can be successful. We don't feel like we can achieve anything. We don't feel like we're enough because we feel like we're missing something. But I want to remind you that you are powerful. You are more powerful than you realize. And I want to encourage you to explore that and see what that feels like. It might feel uncomfortable. Again, this is not about having power over anyone. This is just that there is an amazing power within you. And when you connect to that more and more, the world gets to see that and everyone starts to feel powerful. It's contagious. 
I think that really ties into my guest story today where we are talking about stepping into your power and doing really hard things, even failing and continuing to step into your power. The story of my guest today that they basically were put in a situation that shocked them to the core and they had to really make a shift. And in making a shift, they were able to get into a career that they loved and truly were made for. They were able to see the power of dreaming, of believing, of manifesting to put them in the place and the things that they had to do to get there. I really don't want to spoil it all, but really just know that sometimes we feel like a situation like a relationship breakup or a job loss will break us, but maybe it's the best thing that ever happened to you. And I feel like this is what my guest experienced this in her story. So my guest today is Dr. Kim Johnson Hatchett, and she is a wife, mom, author, speaker, physician, an advocate. And she has a beautiful story. So let's go ahead and get into the story. So hello, Dr. Kim, and welcome to the It Didn't Break Me podcast. Hello there. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on here. I am very grateful that you're willing to share your story with my listeners. Very encouraging story. So let's get into it. What is something you thought would break you, but it didn't? Back in 2000, 2000, I remember coming home from watching a movie um, with my then first husband. Mm -hmm. And we were going to go to the arcade. And back then you had, you know, quarters for the arcade. So we had a bag of quarters. Both of us were big arcade nerds. And I remember coming back to our house that we had just built off of my bonus check (laughs) from my job. We were getting things together and he had this look on his face. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, okay. And he looked at me and this is the man I had been with since I was 17. Mm -hmm. And I'm now 20, whatever I was. And he said, I can't do this anymore. And I said, can't do what? And he said, I can't do this. I can't be with you anymore. And I thought, where's the camera? You've got Mm. to be kidding me. And I thought, this cannot be happening. This is my perfect life. What are you doing? And I thought my world was going to crumble. And I thought it was going to break me. But it didn't. So that was a moment in my life that was pivotal, huge, huge, pivotal moment. You know, I could have stayed and begged and, but I didn't because he didn't want me anymore. And Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And I was devastated. Looking back, man, that was probably the best thing. That was God freeing me from that situation. Wow. Wow. How did that feel at the time? What were some of your thoughts and your feelings? Um, embarrassment, obviously. Um, we had just had this fairy tale wedding a few years prior, and on the outside looking in, everybody thought we were happy. But honestly, looking back now, I can say relief because it was something that I knew that I didn't have the courage to do. And I knew that God desperately wanted me out. 
because he had so many more things in store for me. But at the time, embarrassment, sadness, um, heartbreak. Yeah, just I felt so uh, like I had failed a failure. Mm. I felt like I was I was failing as a Mm. wife. Again, I think it's all about retrospection. You know, you look back and think. How could this be something that turned into this life I'm living now? And man, I couldn't have orchestrated even any better. Because the story I have to tell now is just amazing. Mm. So I'm curious, did you want to end the marriage? Honestly, at first I didn't. But the more we went through the divorce process, the more I was like, yeah, this is going to work out okay for me. But at first I was like, no. I mean, we literally, literally had just built a house. You know, we even gotten a chance to furnish the house yet. So, But we literally had just built a house. We were talking about trying to have kids and all those things that you just do when you're newly married. But yeah, I think once the divorce was done and I had walked away, I was relieved. I didn't have anybody to answer to anymore except for me. Hmm. What did you do next? How did what did your life start to look like once you had finalized the divorce? Because, um, of course, that was something that was a big shocker. It was. And so, I mean, my life started to look like, what do I really want to do? What am I really supposed to be doing? Right before that happened, I had gotten a job as a pharmaceutical sales rep. And my undergraduate degrees in finance and banking. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I did that to get done with school. I had, you know, I, I liked math. So I thought, oh, I'll get a degree in finance. And that was really it. But I didn't really like my degree or what I was doing. But pharmaceutical sales opened up my eyes to science and opened up my eyes to biological science. And so I thought I could do something with this. And at the same time, right around the time of the divorce, I met all of these young Black physicians that were women. And I thought, is this something that I could do? And I remember having a conversation with someone who's now my mentor, one of my mentors. And she was like, of course you can do this. Of course, Kim, of course you can. You are brilliant. Mm. And I didn't even see how smart I actually was until I sat down and realized that I had the aptitude to understand all of this information and like synthesize it and actually regurgitate it out back out to another to a patient and really understand what's going on with the patient's body. Once I realized that, I thought, okay, I got to figure out a path to go on to get to this with this finance degree. I don't have any type of science background. (laughs) What what am I going to do to figure this thing out? So it, um, how old were you at the time? Oh gosh, I was in my mid twenties. Yes, okay. I was in my mid twenties. I was probably twenty four okay. when I first started thinking about going back to medical school. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, I didn't get into medical school. My first year of medical school was when I turned thirty. I remember I had a a dirty thirty party, like a <laughs> salsa. It was salsa and sushi, and um, then I turned. That was my first semester of my med school year. Yeah. That first semester of med school is when I turned 30. So I was probably the second oldest medical. I was the yeah, second oldest medical student by one month in my class. Were you ever deterred at starting at that age? I know some people, they may put an age on certain things or Mm -hmm, feel like mm -hmm. their life is over or they can't start again. What, What were some of those thoughts you might have had yourself? 
So my thought was time's going to tick on anyway. I'm going to keep living anyway. So why not try? You know, I don't want to look back with regret. I'd always thought, okay, at least I could try. Um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't have kids yet. And I didn't have, you know, at that time, a man. So I was like, well, shoot, who else? What else am I going to be doing besides trying to do this? So, no, my age never, never even factored in the back of my mind. It never, never came into play. Okay. What was your driving force then? I didn't want to die and have to answer for things that God had given me that I didn't utilize. Like, that's my biggest fear. Like that, even now, that is something that drives me is I don't want to die and him say, I gave you all of these things and you screwed it up. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. I, I You had the potential to do all of these things and give to the world and you didn't do it. Why? Hmm. And it's like, I and, and the thing is, in the back of my mind, he's like, I know you know what you're supposed to be doing. So do it. So that's my driving force. That's like, it haunts me sometimes at night. It wakes me up and makes me write things down because I know that I'm supposed to be doing things. And I don't want to have to answer for the talents that he's given me that I didn't utilize. Wow. Okay. So you get into, you get into grad school. I mean, mm-hmm. med school, sorry. Uh, um, age 30. What does that look like? What's that experience like for you? It is hilarious because- Right before medical school, I had to take all those prerequisite classes and I had to work at night Um, and I worked at auto manufacturing, this plant. You would have thought we were making atomic bombs. It was like DEFCON 4 if the plant, the land went down, everybody screaming (laughs) and running around and the stress level was crazy. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm only here for a season. Okay, (laughs) you all can scream about it if you want to. But when I would get into medical school and these, they, in my mind, they were kids because I'm 30 and they're like 21, 22, and they would start crying about stuff or upset about something. And I'm like, if you only knew, this is nothing. All we're learning about is the body. I mean, this is great. We're living the life. Enjoy it. And Mm -hmm. so I actually felt like I was probably one of the calmest ones there because I had seen so much and lived through so much that it didn't even really phase me. I got stressed out about some of the classes and I studied harder than I've ever studied in my life. Mm. But it was um it was a it was kind of an amusing four years because you realized how much life experience made you a different type of medical student. Like I related to my patients so much better than the younger kids because I had been and seen so many other things. Mm. So it was a benefit, even though, you know, at the time you, well, not that you did think about that, but if, you know, someone's thinking my age or is it too late, but your actual life experience made a huge difference in terms of doing the work and connecting to your patients. Yeah, I think, I think just not having even a science background, having a business background and being able to talk in layman's terms. Mm-hmm. was easy made it easier made it made mm-hmm. me much more relatable to my patients was there any ever a time when you was in med school and you thought to yourself wow I'm actually here I can't believe I actually did this yes before I started medical school where I went to medical school I went to St. Louis University in St. Louis Missouri I was living in St. Louis before I actually did go to grad school I went to this thing called a postback program and mm-hmm. then came back to St. Louis but before that I used to study with one of my girlfriends who was already in medical school. And so she was finishing up. She and I would study. I was studying for the interest exam. 
I would stop before I would drive to the night shift at work. I would stop and walk around the medical school. Mm-hmm. I did that probably two or three times a week. I would just walk around and like envision myself actually being there. And I remember, and I thought, damn it, I should have envisioned myself being at Harvard or, you know, <laughs> why did I envision myself being here? But anyway, so I envisioned myself being there. When I finally got accepted and the way that I got accepted was so crazy, but the, when I finally got accepted to that school, I remember thinking, man, I used to walk around envisioning myself being here. And I used to carry like my acceptance letter in my backpack, just in case those fools tried to say, oh, you're not supposed to be here. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> right here. I'm supposed to be here. So yeah, it was just unbelievable that I had actually envisioned myself being there and I was there. Wow. I'm curious about that. What led you to do the envisioning and walking around before you even got there? What do you feel like was like, I need to do this? I just wanted it so bad. And I wanted to see what the place looked like. I wanted to feel what it felt like to walk in those hallways. Yeah, that first day, I don't know what made me do it, but I did it. That first day I did it, the the guard let me in. He was like, oh, okay, yeah, walk around, fine. And I (laughs) guess I did it enough that he knew who I was and was like, oh, you come and walk around again, ain't you? I said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, go on, walk around. and. Yeah. So that was, it was weird that I did it so much that the person even at the guard at the, let just let me in. Like now they wouldn't do that. But back then, you know, it was before anything crazy was happening. I don't know. I don't know what led me to do it the first time though. I just on a humbug stopped and did it. Wow. You just, this is something I've got to do. And then you actually have the guard that allows you to do it. Cause like you said, that doesn't always happen for everyone. Right. Yeah. It's just amazing because you know, the envisioning and what happens when you really are intentional and focusing on envisioning your future and actually being in that space and then how it turns out and how powerful that is. So I can definitely, definitely relate to that. So you get through med school. What happens next? I decided I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be like your third year of med school. You have to figure out what kind of doctor you want to be because, you know, pathologists, plastic surgeons, neurologists, all of us go to the same medical school. But it's that third year where you figure things out. And I remember thinking I wanted to be a general surgeon. And I met a vascular surgeon was the head of black vascular surgery was a woman. And she said, if you find something that you love more than this, you do that. But if you don't, then you come back and be a surgeon. She said, but it's a hard life, you know, for a woman. It's hard. It's hard. It's doable, but it's hard. I said, okay. And what I will tell you, being a physician in general for women is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just being a surgeon. It's just being a physician. And my third year, I realized I wanted to be a neurologist. I loved the logic of it. I loved the clues that your body leaves you to figure out where the lesion is in the nervous system or in the brain. Like I absolutely love it. I had to pick a mentor. Um, So at the end of your third year, you have to pick a mentor because you start interviewing for residency. And so they gave us a list of people. And so I went down the list and I saw these names and I went back to the top of the list and I saw the chairman and mm-hmm. I thought, well, why not? I'll just ask him. And so I, I, unbeknownst to me, I asked the chairman and he says, yes. So the chairman of the neurology department becomes my mentor in med school. 
And so he like gave me books and gave me things to read. And, and then he sat me down and said, okay, you've, you know, interviewed at all these places that you want to go for residency. Give me your top two. And he said, and so I gave him my top two. He said, okay, both of those are good choices. Which one's your number one? And I'll make a phone call. I told him my number one. He said, okay, I know the chairman. He called the other chairman and said, you'd be making a huge mistake if you didn't bring her on as your resident. And that's how I ended up at KU. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And so that's that's how I ended up doing neurology at Kansas University was my mentor, Dr. Kaminsky over at St. Louis made a phone call and I interviewed and I guess I interviewed well enough for them to say, sure, we'll go ahead. We'll make her the uh, resident there. Mm-hmm. But it was only four residents there when I was there, which mm. is crazy. Wow. Things just keep lining up for you, don't they, Dr. Kim? When you do, it's a, I, I love how when you're, it's almost as like when you're where you're meant to be, the doors yeah. just kind of open. open up. Yeah, But it wasn't all smooth sailing because we also talked about the challenges you had with actually taking your board exams as well. Tell us a bit yeah. about that. So the first set of boards, so you, when you get done with residency and you actually get into, you know, your an attending and all that stuff, before you start, you end up with residency, you have to take your boards and you don't have to take them, but you you should take them. Um, and so I, I've started studying for them and I took them and I missed it by like two points. Two points? Like two points. The first time I I, I didn't make it, I missed it by two points. And I was pregnant with my, by that, by that time I'd gotten married and I was pregnant with our first daughter. And so I remember being at the baby shower and finding out like right before I went to the baby shower that I didn't pass. Oh, how was that? And so I just said, okay. And I had to like squash that down and enjoy the baby shower because there's nothing I could do about it, you know, at that point. Um, and so, you know, my program was like, it's okay. That happens. Don't worry about it. You'll pass the next time you'll be fine. But the reality is once you start working and you have a baby and you have a husband and you have a life, it's very hard to study for this exam that you're supposed to pass, that you're supposed to pass. Kim's smart. She's supposed to pass. Like that was the mantra of my program was like, oh, she's super smart. I would be introduced as, oh, this is Kim. She's really smart. Like that was how I was introduced to people. Wow. And so that pressure was like, oh crap, I'm supposed to be the smart one. Why am I not passing this test? Yeah. I was going to actually say those, that is exactly what I was thinking is, yeah. wow, that sounds like a lot of pressure. <laughs> it was a lot of pressure. Did you oh. think- did you begin to question yourself or, you know, what, what um, was the result of that? I think I started to think, okay, I should, I should be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And before every obstacle that I had faced up to that point, in my mind, I was able to do this. But then I started to realize, wait a minute, no, I actually got advice from other people or got, you know, and followed their advice to get into medical school. Like I didn't go straight through med school. I did grad school. Someone told me you need to do grad school before you go to med school. So I did that. So I followed their advice, getting into actual medical school and interviewing for medical school. I actually followed someone's advice. So finally I thought, okay, I failed this bad boy twice. Twice. Doing it my way. Yeah. I failed it twice doing it my way. 
And I finally said, let me just ask some folks, what should I do? And I found out about this program in Philly and I got there and there was somebody else there and they were like, what are you doing here? And I said, look, I need to still pass this damn test. (laughs) And I followed the program and it was like a light bulb went off. And not only did I follow the program, I asked my husband and my family and my friends, like, look, take these kids. I need time to focus (laughs) and get this. By that time, I'd had another baby. And so I'm like, so Wait, like, what? Yeah. So I had I have two kids and they're like Irish twins because they were like very close together in age. I was one of those uh like Rihanna, you know, I mm-hmm. was pregnant real pregnant real quick. You know, I think I might have whole Helen might have been eight months old when I got pregnant with Hope. Wow. So yeah, so I just like I was like, I can I feel you, Rihanna. Everybody's like, <laughs> oh, the baby's too young. I'm like, people do that all the time. They do, you know, they do. So Anyway, so yeah, so I, they they would I would had time to really focus, and the way that that program focused you to or pushed you to do a certain way of studying, it was like everything clicked, and I passed. And not only did I pass that one, the next year I thought, well, shoot, I'm gonna take my fellowship boards, and I got boarded in another part of neurology. So I'm clinical. I have the clinical neurophysiology boards that I passed on the first try because I had the formula. I, I realized that even though I know I'm smart, I still need to ask for help. I still need to focus and figure out a different way of doing things because the way I was doing it obviously wasn't working. Mm, so I love that. Um, I love that. Even though I'm smart, I know I still need to ask for help. Do you feel like sometimes there is this thing or this expectation or unspoken rule that smart people don't need help? Do you think, do you feel like that? Oh, yeah. Comes across somewhere. I think that and I think that we as black women put that pressure on ourselves so Mm -hmm. much um, Mm -hmm. that we do not want to ask even each other for help. We just want to seem like we're doing it all on our own. Um, And it's so not true. Mm. Did you feel any pressure as a black woman becoming a doctor? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, In my family, there were tons of educators, lots of teachers, some professors, but no physicians. I'm the Mm -hmm. only one. I felt that pressure. I felt the pressure because I was one. I was the only one until like my PGY, my fourth year of residency. They the one of the there were like two PGY twos that were Mm African-American. And so I was like, thank God, because I was by myself. And Mm -hmm. then I remember my program director sitting me down and saying, I need to talk to you about something. I thought, "Uh oh. He said, look, we're trying to figure out who's going to be the chief resident. I said, okay. And I'm thinking he probably wants my input on who's going to be the chief Mm -hmm. resident. He said, you're the natural choice. You're going to be the chief resident. I said, say what? And he said, you're the natural choice. You're going to be the chief resident. And that's what you're going to do starting now. What? Yeah. It was like, now you are the chief resident. We have all unanimously voted you in and you were the chief resident. So I had that pressure. People that I thought were going to be chief resident weren't. It was me. And so I had to figure out the schedule. I had to figure out, you know, I'm now managing my co-residents. It was just a lot of pressure. So I I, I, I had a lot of pressure. How did you deal with the pressure? You know, um, salsa dancing, cooking. <laughs> no, seriously. I, um, I think I handle pressure in a way that is different because I, like I said, I've been through so much. Mm-hmm. And I remember the pressure and watching people crumble when I worked for that automotive industry. Like, and when I worked for the automotive industry, it was very 
high pressure. Mm-hmm. I'd lived through that. I'd lived through a divorce, um, lived through a lot of things. And so it just didn't, nothing really phases me. The reality is sometimes I sit and I would think about it and I would write things out. So I would, I, I guess I did journal, I journaled a lot. Mm-hmm. And I thought about, you know, how I could focus my my energy on just being better, focus my energy on being a better version of me. So I did that. And I mean, I I, quest- I think I questioned more why was I single during medical school when I would see some of my friends getting married in medical school. But I realized that I wouldn't have been able to finish had I been all goo goo gaga in love with someone. <laughs> really? You think oh. it would have been a distraction for you? Absolutely. Because I had to, you had to study. I had to study in medical school. Mm-hmm. Medical school was no punk. Are you a Trekkie? No. Okay. Well, okay. So I am. <laughs> in Star Trek, there's this group of beings called the Borg. Mm-hmm. And the Borg, they travel around galaxies in this cube. And what they do, if they show up, like if they showed up in our galaxy, oh, oh crap, we're all about to get assimilated and become one with the Borg. Mm-hmm. They are one mind, one thought, one presence. They all become one. Every being that they assimilate becomes one with them. And I felt like that's what they were doing to us in medical school. They were assimilating us. You turned into a different type of person. The way that you looked at the body was totally different. The way that you understood the body was totally different. They indoctrinated you and you became one, one mind. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was crazy. And I was like, this is like the Borg, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we're becoming assimilated. So, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And you and it happened so subtly, but so quickly that first semester in gross anatomy, that's when either you were going to make it or you weren't. That was the weed out course. And I remember when I got done with that, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. There's no doubt in my mind. This is a matter of me figuring this thing out because I had made it through. I become assimilated. I become one with the Borg, you know? <laughs> mm, I love that. So in a way, you know, being relieved that you had that divorce because this would have been. It would have never lot. happened. Mm-hmm. It would have never happened. I would have never had the thought of, oh, I could be doing more with my life. And then I would have to answer for it. Wow. So, I mean, I. This it, it when I say it is one of those things that I thank God, I thank God that that happened. And I truly people say, oh, I think. No, I really thank God that that happened because it my life would I wouldn't have my two girls like, you know, I don't know if you can see that picture of back behind my head, my two girls mm-hmm. and my husband. I I wouldn't there's no way I would have any of this. You know, I'm I this it's. It's amazing when I think about how Mm -hmm. that pain that I had back then turned into this unbelievable sheer pleasure that I live right now. So, wow, that's powerful. That's so powerful. And now we have Dr. Kim, the neurologist. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So do you have any words, some, some words to encourage the listener or you feel like is on your heart that you know, someone might need to hear. Don't give up. Like if you feel like God has given you something that you were supposed to be doing and it didn't happen the first time or the second time, don't give up because it's going to happen. 
I was watching the Odyssey the other day. And just think about it. That knew that dude knew he was going to get home. And I forgot it was like 20 years that he was like out there on the sea doing whatever he was doing in the story. Um, and the Odyssey, you know, what I'm talking about with Odysseus. Mm-mm. Okay, so in Greek mythology, um, there's this story about the story called the Odyssey. It's mm-hmm. um and actually a bigger story called the Iliad. Um, and so the Odyssey is about this guy named Odysseus. Odysseus is this king or leader in Greek, in some area in Greece, and he goes off on this like adventure. And his wife is like, I hope you come back to me. And it takes him like 20 years, 20 years to come back. She never loses faith that he's going to come back. And he never, all the twists and turns and craziness, like the, the, the saying of rock in a hard place comes from that actual story. Like he goes through a lot. So he didn't give up. So like that guy, even though it's Greek mythology and it really didn't happen, you never give up. Because if, if if it's supposed to happen, it's going to happen. And if you have to believe that if God has given you the vision, like he gave me the vision to walk around that school and know that I was supposed to be there, right? So if he gave me that vision, he's not cruel. Of course, he's going to give me a way to make it happen. It might not happen the way that I think it's supposed to happen, but it's going to happen. So that's what I would tell people. Mm, wow. Don't give up. It's going to happen no matter what happens. Well, no matter what it looks like, don't give up. Don't give up because he yeah. wouldn't give you the vision if it wasn't possible. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim. That was very powerful. So one more, two more questions. Um, first okay. one, um, what is something messy in your life? Messiness. So, you know, right now I am, I'm a neurologist, but I'm also an administrator. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been, uh, and this is something that I envisioned, which is creepy that I envisioned this too. I am the chief of medicine of my hospital. Um, And so I manage a department of 13 different subspecialties. And I have some challenges trying to organize how I am managing these different subspecialties. Like right now, that is probably the thing that I am focused on trying to Mm -hmm. improve because it's messy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have, you know, managers and actually physicians that are answering to me that might not want to have someone that looks like me managing them um, or a woman managing them um, or, uh, you know, uh, someone who's not a medical medicine person, because I'm a neurologist, I didn't do an internal medicine residency, but I have almost all of the people that work for me did internal medicine and then are cardiologists or pulmonary doctors or whatever other kind of specialty they are. So Mm -hmm. they'll start talking about it. And I don't understand because I didn't do, you know, internal medicine, I have to ask them basic questions. So that part right now, I'm working on being a better manager, being a better leader. So my messiness, I think right now is in be improving my leadership skills um, and at the corporate level, at the at the upper management level, um, improving that. Okay. You're managing people. Right. That's a lot. And then knowing some people, and, and I can only imagine knowing some people might be having a hard time being who you are in this position. Okay, thank you. Where can we find you and how can people find you, shall I say, to shower you with love? What's the best way for them to connect with you? So I'm probably most active on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Kim Neurodoc 
on Instagram, D-R-K-I-M-N-E-U-R-O dot D-O-C. Um, and then you can find me at drkimberlyjhatchett.com um, and subscribe there. Um, I have a blog that I am working on. <laughs> and then, you know, if you want to know more about my story, um, my book, um, Retrospective Calling, I wrote and published it last year. It kind of gives a not only a roadmap of how you can figure out where you're supposed to be, but kind of gives you more insight of to where I've been and what I've done. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm going to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Dr. Kim, for being on the It Didn't Break Me podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Man, oh man. I am so appreciative of Dr. Kim sharing her story. Um, I just think that, you know, if any of the stories that are on the podcast are just inspiring and giving a lot of hope when we feel like we're not going to get through or things that we experience are going to break us or we avoid things that we think will break us. A couple of my takeaways. The first one, um, when she was just talking first about her divorce and the fairy tale wedding, just building a house, how everyone just thought they was in the perfect relationship and the power that she had and the courage she had well, that came from her ex-husband at the time to let go and she agreed. And I would say she didn't continue to hold on even as much as at the beginning she wanted to, they became a point where she was able to let go. And it just reminds me sometimes that we might hold on to a relationship or a job because on the outside, it seems so well, but there might be something deep down inside of us that knows that this is not the best for us. And I know um, one of the big things working with perfectionism is that being attached to outcome, that attachment to a certain outcome can make us drive and continue to, you know, go force on a goal or stay in a relationship longer than we need. And there's no judgment, but it's just an understanding. So I was appreciative of her sharing that. The second thing is not giving up, not giving up hope and really her drive to really do all the things that she is meant to do. Like she just went for it. She continues to go for it. And that is her driving force to do all the things that she is meant to do. Scary as it may be, um, challenges it may be, Dr. Kim still continued. I would love to hear your takeaway. You can send me an email, hello at authenticallybeyou.com. You can tag me on Instagram at authenticallybeyou. And I would love to hear your takeaways. I would love to hear them even more in the review of the podcast. You can rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And do not forget to share this with a friend. Someone else needs to hear this. So share this message. Thank you so much. Were you inspired by this story? Here are some ways you can shower me and the podcast with your appreciation and support. Follow, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Share the podcast via text with your people, with your tribe. Subscribe to the newsletter where I share my personal stories of discovering the beauty within the mess. And lastly, follow me on Instagram at authenticallybeyou for tips 
and insights on overcoming perfectionism so you can embrace your imperfections and authentically be you. Thank you so much for listening to the It Didn't Break Me podcast and remember to discover the beauty within the mess.